0: This is part two in a series on the Modoc War. If you haven't already listened to part one, you may want to do so. Link in the show notes. In the previous episode, we discussed the Modoc people, a bit of their history, and the unfortunate events leading up to the Modoc War. About how Cap Jack and his band weren't content with living conditions on the Klamath Reservation, so they simply left and headed south back to their homeland around Tule Lake. And we ended the episode with the first shot of the war and the beginning of the Battle of Lost River. Now, if you'll indulge me just for a moment, I'd like to add a bit more context to the state of affairs directly preceding the Battle of the Lost River. Remember, from April of 1870 to November of 1872, roughly two and a half years, Captain Jack and his people did maintain an uneasy peace with the local settlers, for the most part. There were no more raids, no more war parties or attacks on wagons or anything like that. Their main crime seems to just be making the locals very nervous. And to be totally honest, one can't really blame the settlers for feeling that way. While the Modoc were at the reservation, the homesteaders began trickling in after being assured that the quote-unquote Indian problems were settled, at least in that area, and that the land was open and theirs for the taking. Then here come the Modoc, sashaying back in and demanding rent along with what amounts to protection money. But you can't blame the Modoc either, right? I mean, this was their land, no matter what a piece of broken treaty paper might say. At least back there in their home territory, the Modoc men could provide for their families, and their children were no longer going to sleep with empty bellies or being threatened by the Klamath. And like I said, peace was maintained, but barely. One thing I failed to mention in Part 1 was that many of the younger Hothead Modoc were indeed looking for any excuse at all to go on the warpath. And the band's shaman or medicine man guy known as Curly-Headed Doctor wasn't helping matters. Old Curly was an early disciple of the Ghost Dance religion. As such, he helped spread the prophetic promise of the Whites soon being driven from their land altogether, of how the Modoc would be reunited with their dead loved ones, and how his medicine would help protect them in battle. He'd get the warriors all worked up, and Kit Puash, or Captain Jack, would have to talk them off the ledge. More than once. Adding to all of this, you may remember me mentioning an Indian agent by the name of T.B. O'Donnell in the last episode. Well, I misspoke. I should have said he was the superintendent of Indian affairs for Oregon, as opposed to simply an agent. That said, O'Donnell was relatively new on the job when all this occurred, having replaced Alfred Meacham in early 1872. Now, Meacham was trying to work with the Modoc. They knew him. There was a grudging respect. Hell, Meacham was even trying to get their own separate reservation like they wanted. O'Donnell had none of this going for him. He didn't know Captain Jack. He didn't know the intricacies of the relationship with the Modoc, And in turn, they didn't trust him. And when O'Donnell finally took action, contacting the commanding officer at Fort Klamath, Major John Green, and telling him to send his troops down to get Captain Jack, O'Donnell did so without informing Lieutenant Colonel Frank Whedon or General Canby, the two top military commanders in the area. So, when the army did show up there at the Lost River Camp on November 29, 1872, the situation was tenuous to say the least, even with Captain Jack doing all he could to maintain peace. Now, the original plan was to confront the Modoc with an overwhelming show of force. The hope was that Captain Jack and his people would see the futility in fighting, that they were far outnumbered, and just return to the reservation without putting up a fight. But as we touched on on the previous episode, Captain James Jackson of the 1st Cavalry showed up with just a mere 40 troops and a handful of civilians. Not the most intimidating army, numbers-wise, to say the least. Certainly not a large enough force to frighten the Modoc back to the Klamath Reservation. The soldiers also failed to catch the natives by surprise, at least not to the full extent that they were hoping to. Captain James Jackson intended to arrive at the village early in the morning when it was still dark in order to catch the Modoc as they were still half asleep, but the weather just would not cooperate. Remember, this is the end of November and the horse soldiers soon found themselves riding through a damn sleet storm. And when that passed, everything was froze over, including them. It was hard riding on a trail that had basically been reduced to a muddy slush, and by the time they did reach the Modoc camp, It was already full light, and the troops had been in the saddle, freezing their balls off for at least 16 hours. No more element of surprise, and certainly not an overwhelming and intimidating show of force. Nevertheless, the soldiers dismounted and headed into Jack's camp. And the civilians did the same, crossing the river and confronting Hooker Jim and his 17 warriors. Important to note, by the way, that these civilians were acting on their own. They were neither ordered to the camp, nor was their presence welcome, not by the military or the Modoc. Be that as it may, they still began ordering Hooker Jim and his people to lay down their arms. And at first, they did, most of them at least, placing their bows and old flintlocks on the ground. Meanwhile, over at the main camp, there was still no side of the head man in charge, Captain Jack. Like I said in the previous episode, it's thought, and Jack later claimed, that he was simply waiting in his lodge for the officer in charge, thinking that they'd parley like before. Now, I have read that the build-up to things turning violent... From the moment the soldiers arrived to the first shot being fired was somewhere around 45 minutes if that's true this does sort of confuse me a bit you know why didn't jack come out and try to defuse the situation was he simply unaware of how tense things were getting outside could he not hear what was going on i don't know now i also mentioned in the last episode how things kicked off when lieutenant Boutel tried to disarm and arrest scarface charlie Who, by the way, did not gain his nickname from scars earned in battle. Poor guy fell off a wagon when he was a child and got runt over. Not that it matters, I just found it to be an interesting anecdote that reminded me of Johnny Cash. Remember that scar on his face, the way it sort of lent credence to his outlaw persona? Kind of made him look all that much more darker and dangerous? And then you learn that Johnny got that scar back when he had a cyst cut off his face in the Air Force, as opposed to a knife fight in San Quentin. Legend has it that the military doctor was a bit in the cups at the time of the procedure. Anyway, I'm rambling. Point being, Scarface Charlie, while he did have a large scar on his face that made him plenty scary looking, it weren't a combat wound. Not that this made the man any less lethal, mind you, and he damn sure wasn't about to lay down his gun and get arrested. That's where Lieutenant Boutel comes into play and where we left off on the previous episode. The warriors, like Scarface Charlie, who still retained their firearms, were clearly getting ready to use them, and the junior officer quickly realized that violence just wasn't going to be avoided. The sooner you open up the fight, the better. Before there are any more preparations, Boutel remarked strongly urging Captain Jackson to open up the dance before the warriors got even more of an upper hand. And that's when the lieutenant got the go-ahead to disarm Scarface Charlie. The brief confrontation that ended with both men firing at each other almost simultaneously, And just like that, the war was on. And also brings us to where we left off last episode. Curious to find out what happens next? Well, stay tuned. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. As soon as Lieutenant Butel and Scarface Charlie discharge their firearms... The still-armed Modoc warriors began pumping rounds and arrows into the exhausted and half froze soldiers as those who laid down their guns went for them in a mad scramble. Likewise over at Hooker Jim's camp. As soon as the civilians were momentarily distracted by the opening shots across the river, the warriors moved almost as one, swooping up their discarded rifles and bows and laying down a withering fire, driving the vigilantes out of their village. In their haste to save their own scalps, the retreating civilians succeeded in killing just two Modocs Tragically, an unarmed woman and her infant child, both cut down by a single shotgun blast. Meantime, over at Jack's camp, it's total chaos. Not only are the troopers attempting to return fire at the Modoc, but they're also trying to control their startled and bucking horses from stampeding. In short order, eight of their number are wounded, and things likely would have been far worse had Lieutenant Boutel not rallied his men and led a countercharge, temporarily throwing the Modoc off their game and forcing them to retreat. The whole bloody mess was over in less than five minutes. One soldier was dead in Captain Jack's village along with one Modoc warrior, a guy they called the Watchman. Over at Hooker Jim's camp, two civilians were killed along with the aforementioned woman and her baby. And several on both sides, Modoc and soldiers alike, were wounded. Not exactly a successful military operation, especially considering that had the army indeed shown up with more than 40 men as originally planned, the Modoc likely would have come in without any problems, but hindsight's 2020, I reckon. Now, them soldiers did finally re-enter the two Modoc camps, burning all of the lodges along with any discarded supplies. Sadly, one of the torched huts contained an elderly Modoc woman who was burned alive. I got to imagine her cruel and painful demise, which, in all fairness, was not intentional, along with the shotgunning of that mother and her little child certainly did not help matters as far as any future diplomacy was concerned now at this point the Modoc were beaten feet south some in canoes headed down river to Thule lake and eventually the safety of the lava beds and how best to describe the lava beds if you haven't seen them yet do yourself a favor and do a google image search formed thousands of years ago due to volcanic eruptions the rugged terrain of the lava beds is just a flat-out fortress We're talking a labyrinth of natural trenches, along with hundreds of caves and pits that would not only shelter the Modoc but enable them to effectively hold off a much larger force. And what's more, they knew the lava beds like the back of their hand. This was their Alamo, their fallback when things got sketchy, and had been for centuries. And just to give you a better idea, I found a really cool video on YouTube from the Story Out West channel. The host recently did his own excellent series on the Modoc, and in his video titled The Stronghold, The Modoc War Part 2, he actually visits the lava beds and walks through one of these natural trenches. Check it out when you get a chance. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Suffice to say, it's no small wonder that this place would soon be dubbed Jack's Stronghold, or that the Modoc would rush there for protection. Unfortunately, not all of the Modoc immediately retreated to the lava beds. Sadly, there were about a dozen men under the leadership of Hooker Jim that still had their blood up. While the soldiers temporarily retreated to the nearby Crawley Ranch to regroup and lick their wounds, these warriors began making their way east around Thule Lake, stacking bodies. Their first victims were two settlers who, not knowing what was going on and just hearing gunshots, came to investigate. They were immediately cut down, likely before they even knew what hit them. Next up was a family of Australian immigrants, the Bodies, the angry Modox slaughtered four of the Bodie men, thankfully leaving the women unmolested, as they continued on to the nearby Brotherton homestead, killing three more. Now William Brotherton's 12-year-old son was able to escape, running toward the family cabin where his mother, seeing what was happening, ran out to meet him halfway, a Winchester in one hand and a revolver in the other. The brave woman tossed the pistol to her son and they made a stand of it right there in their home, shooting out of holes in the wall. The Modoc made a few half hearted runs at the cabin, but the tough lady's courage held them off, so they let her be, moving on to softer targets like Henry Miller. Mr. Miller knew the Modoc well. He was one of their advocates and had promised to warn them if he knew that soldiers were in the area. He almost certainly was not aware of that morning's events, but that didn't stop Hooker Jim from filling old Henry full of lead. The Modoc then came upon a German sheep herder. He tried to make a run for it, but was quickly overtaken and put down and on and on it went for the rest of the day. This was everything the settlers had feared ever since the Modoc left the reservation and returned to the area. Their worst nightmare come to fruition. Robert Alexander, John Tober, Christopher Erasmus, just a few of the names of the men who were also killed. Counting the two civilians who died in the initial battle there at Hooker Jim's camp, the total number of settlers killed that day is estimated at 14, on the low end, possibly as many as 18. Just to make things clear, this wasn't all the Modoc; just a handful of them. In the same way not all of the settlers there around Tule Lake hated the Modoc. not all of the Modoc were hell-bent on war. Scarface Charlie, for instance. As he made his way to the lava beds, he encountered several of the local homesteaders, warning them that trouble was afoot and to vacate the area. After all, both he and Captain Jack knew that there wasn't going to be no control in them youngsters once the killing started. Then you had another small group of Modoc, the Hot Creek Band, under the leadership of one Shack Nasty Jim and his brother, Shack Nasty Jake. They were not present at the Battle of Lost River, nor did they want any part of what was happening. As such, a friendly local rancher, John Fairchild, along with a few others, attempted to escort these Hot Creek Modoc up to the relative safety of the clam at the reservation, only getting as far as the town of Linkville before a bunch of drunken vigilantes tried to lynch them. In the same way that Hooker Jim and his warriors didn't care that the civilians they were slaughtering were innocent, these angry citizens of Linkville didn't give two shits that these Hot Creek Modoc were non combatants. After all, they were Indians, and you know the saying about the only good Indians. The justifiably frightened Modoc under the Shack Nasty Brothers slipped away, opted instead to join Captain Jack in the safety of the lava beds. 45 Modoc total in that Hot Creek bunch, by the way, 15 of whom were warriors. Shoring up Captain Jack's fighting force to around 53 men. And you better believe that many of them were crack shots. Another by the way. If you're wondering how the Shacknasty Nasty Brothers got their interesting nicknames. Well, evidently their mother had poor housekeeping habits. Kept a nasty shack. Other men in that Hot Creek band that will go on to play a part in the coming war had names like Bogus Charlie. Who was known to be a bit of a prankster. Steamboat Frank. Another guy who got his name from his mother who was said to have huffed and puffed as she walked. And Ellen's man George, thus named because he had been adopted and later married by an older woman named Ellen. Hell yeah. Now this John Fairchild guy I mentioned, who attempted to bring the Hot Creek Band up to the reservation, like I said, he was a friendly face among the Modoc, and had even tried to help them acquire their own reservation along the Lost River. He and some other guys rode out to the lava beds and made contact with the Modoc, trying to make sense of what the hell was going on. And during their brief conversation, Captain Jack basically put all the blame on Scarface Charlie and Hooker Jim, saying that he himself never wanted any trouble. Now Fairchild would, in the coming months, actually form a company of civilian volunteers to act as sort of guides for the military, as they were familiar with the lay of the land. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For the rest of November and all that December, other than a few very minor skirmishes, everything was pretty quiet as both the Modoc and the military made preparations. Captain Jack and his Modoc were lucky enough to procure some local cattle, providing them with plenty to eat there in the stronghold, while at the same time the army is also getting its affairs in orders, with Lieutenant Colonel Frank Wheaton now at the helm. Finally, in mid-January 1873, nearly two months after the Battle of Lost River, the army made its move and this time it weren't with no 40 troops. Numbers vary, but it looks like Lieutenant Colonel Wheaton had about 214 regulars under his command, mixed cavalry and infantry, along with 60 California militiamen, 30 Klamath warriors, around 15 Northern Paiute, and about 25 more California volunteers under John Fairchild. Not only did they have the Modoc vastly outnumbered, but outgunned as well, especially considering how they brought in some artillery in the form of two mountain howitzers and some coolhorn mortars. Now I had to look that one up. I don't know why, but it never dawned on me that the military utilized mortars as early as the 1870s. Turns out I was way off, as this particular form of artillery was first invented back in the late 1600s and first used in combat in 1702. And if you're familiar with how mortars work, then you know they'd be perfect for a siege-like standoff, such as the one the Modoc and the U.S. military were now engaged in, if all went as planned and if they were used properly. If, if, if. And the plan was pretty straightforward. A couple of cavalry troops would attack the lava beds from the east as the main body of soldiers charged from the west. Both forces would then consolidate south of Jack's stronghold and choke off any warriors attempting to escape as the mortars rained down death from above. Just a simple day's worth of work, according to Lieutenant Frank Wheaton. Ah, but that damned old Murphy and his law, always popping up when you don't want him. When the assault finally began on the morning of January 17th, a thick fog had rolled in, leaving visibility limited at best. As such, the artillery and mortars could not be utilized, at least not without risking hitting their own soldiers. And the troops had to approach the stronghold blindly through the misty haze, not being able to see a damn thing other than the muzzle flashes from the Modoc rifles. The going was slow, to say the least. The soldiers had to cover a lot of open ground over razor-sharp lava rocks, and for the Modoc, it was like shooting fish out of a barrel, especially once that fog began to let up. And the Klamath warriors that were supposed to be helping the army? Well, although Wheaton didn't know it at the time, these so-called scouts were playing both sides, handing over much-needed ammunition and supplies to their Modoc brethren on the sly. Now, this wasn't a situation where the Modoc were simply laying behind rocks and firing at their leisure. I don't want to give that impression. Remember, they were outnumbered, something like six or seven to one, and had a huge chunk of rock to defend. According to the late Keith A. Murray in his book *The Modocs and Their War*, quote. It should be emphasized that the Indians had only 50 men to fight over 300, and they had to operate across three miles of lava. When the chips were down, they still had to defend a perimeter of over a mile of trenches and outpost positions. The only way they could do this was to shuttle men rapidly back and forth between threatened spots. Two or three riflemen could and did pin down a company of soldiers until more Modoc could suppress an attack on another point and return to fire a few shots at the creeping advance. Every army unit was convinced it had equal or superior numbers of Modocs directly opposite them, and at the end of the battle, many soldiers asserted that there were as many Modocs present as there had been troops. End quote. It also didn't help matters much that the Modocs were openly mocking and laughing at the soldiers and civilians attacking the stronghold, sometimes even calling some of them out by name as they recognized them. Now, this disaster would go down in history as the first battle of the stronghold. And in the previous episode, in the intro, I erroneously stated that 35 soldiers lost their lives during this fight. That was incorrect. My bad. According to Robert A. McNelly, author of The Modoc War, A Tale of Genocide at the Dawn of America's Gilded Age, it was just 9 soldiers and militiamen that were killed during the battle with 28 wounded, 3 of them mortally and others so seriously that they would not return to the fight. Still though, that's 9, soon to be 11 men dead from just this one fight. Another soldier and two civilians dead from the last time the army met the Modoc on the Lost River. In both cases, the military had the numerical advantage, and in both meetings, they had their asses handed to them. Held during the first battle at the stronghold, not even a single Modoc was killed. And the crazy thing is, the fight almost never even happened. Matter of fact, if it was strictly up to Captain Jack, he would have simply surrendered as soon as the soldiers showed up. The night before the battle, there was a heated debate among the warriors, with Jack and 14 others voting to lay down their arms and avoid any further bloodshed. The majority of the rest, however, nearly 40 Modoc, vetoed this idea and opted to fight. Obviously, Hooker, Jim, and them others who went on that killing spree wanted to make a stand, knowing that they'd likely be executed if they surrendered. And then you had the shaman, curly-headed doctor, not only was he guilty of slaughtering civilians as well, but remember, he'd been preaching that ghost dance religion and promising that if the warriors did what he said, they couldn't be touched by the soldiers' bullets. Night before the fight, he ordered hundreds of feats of tule fiber rope, painted a bright red, and laid around the stronghold, stating that no white man could enter it. The holy man then had a medicine pole erected, upon which he hung a few white-haired dog hides, some hawk feathers, and otter, and weasel skins. A fire was then built as the men danced and the women chanted, tossing meat sacrifices into the flames. A powerful medicine that prepared the warriors for the day to come. It was also a big gamble on Curly's part. After all, his power and hold over the Modoc hinged on them defeating the soldiers. So when they did finally come out victorious the following day, this only served to bolster the holy man's prestige and strengthen his position as a leader. The same could not be said for Lieutenant Colonel Wheaton. That first battle of the stronghold was such an embarrassing defeat that General Edward Canby himself showed up and relieved Wheaton of duty, soon replacing him with a very unpopular Colonel Alvin Gillum. General Canby, by the way, full name Edward Richard Sprigg Canby, had been wearing a uniform for quite some time, serving not only in the Civil War but the Mexican-American War and the Second Seminole War as well. And during the Civil War, it was Canby that led the Union victory at the Battle of Glorieta Pass forcing all them wild Texas Confederates out of New Mexico. That said, the officer was always considered more of a great administrator as opposed to a fighter. And even then-President Ulysses S. Grant didn't consider Canby aggressive enough. Historian John D. Winters described Canby as, quote, very active, but his work makes no great show as yet, because it is conducted too quietly and without ostentation. Canby is a tall man with a thoughtful and kind face, speaks little and to the point, Thoroughly a soldier, and his manner is very modest and unassuming and sometimes even embarrassed. End quote. Not sure if that's a bad thing. You know, it sounds to me like this conflict with the Modoc could use a little less ostentation and a lot more thoughtfulness. And it appears that I'm not the only one who thinks so. Rather than quickly attack the stronghold yet again, a peace commission was formed. Chaired by Alfred Meacham, that former superintendent of Indian Affairs, that actually had a somewhat respectful relationship with the Modoc in the past. Only problem was that was in the past. The Modoc now partially blamed Meacham for their treatment at the Klamath Reservation. Then there was Jesse Applegate, another member of the Peace Commission and one of the Applegate brothers who forged the South Trail that still bears their name. Goes without saying that the Modoc couldn't stand the man. I mean, it was he and his brother Lindsay who first brought the whites into Modoc territory. And in the years that passed, Applegate had worked to rid the region of Modoc so he could use their land to run his cattle. Sensing this distrust and disdain from the Modoc, General Canby wasn't just content to rely on wishful dreams of peace. He used the intervening days to strengthen his forces, bringing the total number of men under his command to a thousand and adding a few more mortars in the process. And once again, Captain Jack was looking to surrender. You know, I couldn't help but notice parallels between the Modoc War and the Nez Perce War, particularly with the perceived leaders. If you haven't listened to the episode I did on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War, link in the show notes, but spoiler alert. Chief Joseph wasn't really in charge, nor was he ever a war chief. He just happened to be a name that the press picked up on, and seeing as how the Nez Perce War was widely reported, Joseph was somehow cast into the limelight, despite his never being in charge of anything other than his small band. Likewise here with Captain Jack. He was the chief, yes, just like Joseph, but he's clearly not in total command of the Modoc. I mean, you had him and his people, but you also had those Hot Creek Modoc and the ones under Hooker Jim. Not to mention everybody that was under Curly Headed Doctor's spell. And besides, no chief could speak for all of the warriors anyway. Jack couldn't order anyone to either fight or surrender. He could merely suggest and lend his counsel. And just like with the Nez Perce, it was a handful of young hotheads who got the Modoc into this pickle. And it was the hotheads who continued to argue against surrendering, even when facing off against a thousand troops. Still though, there was an uneasy truce as these peace talks continued for around three months, with the Modoc surrounded by the ever-growing force of soldiers. Troops who by now had replaced their clan the Scouts with 70 natives from the Warm Springs Reservation in north-central Washington state. The Modoc demands remained simple. They wanted their own reservation in the Lost River region, or possibly along Hot Creek. And they wanted to be left to hell alone. The government, however, was pushing for an unconditional surrender. And they made it clear that they were going to charge many of the Modoc, especially Hooker Jim and his warriors, for murder. There were several meetings. Sometimes the Modoc would send female emissaries to meet with the Peace Commission. Other times the government would send their own messengers straight into the stronghold. And while a lot of these sit-downs were peaceful, especially when the trusted John Fairchild was present, many of them were just downright tense. Elijah Steele, a Wairika lawyer who had always gotten along well with the Modoc, barely escaped with his life after spending the night in the stronghold, refusing to ever return. Finally, the Peace Commission received permission to offer up an alternative solution. Rather than hand the Modoc over to the wrathful Oregonians, they would be sent to Indian Territory for a spell, to let things cool down a bit, and then they could negotiate for their own reservation. However, those responsible for slaughtering those innocent civilians had to be held accountable. The Modoc would not agree to this, and they continued to stall. And in a way, you can't fault them. I mean, Ben Wright and his massacre were ever-present on their minds. You may recall that from the last episode. How the notorious Indian killers set up a white flag and invited the Modoc in under the ruse of peace talks, only to slaughter dozens of them. It's no small wonder that the Modoc still equated these peace talks with treachery. And it should come as no surprise that they themselves began devising a treacherous plot all of their own. Keep in mind that the army had been slowly moving in closer and closer until they were camped just within sight of the stronghold, letting the Modoc see just how outnumbered they truly were. And yes, Captain Jack still wanted to surrender. His main opponents, Curly-headed Doctor, Hooker Jim, and Schonchin Jim, still all strongly opposed this idea, for the obvious reasons that they knew they'd still be tried and executed. Things got so heated that at one point someone tossed some woman clothing on Captain Jack, deeply shaming the Modoc chief so much that he finally agreed to their treacherous plans. The idea was to kill the peace commissioners, of whom General Canby was now a member, the Modoc figured that if they got rid of these men, the leaders, the rest would just cut their losses and leave. Cutting the head off the snakes, so to speak. And Captain Jack, in order to regain his strength among the Modoc and assuage his wounded pride, agreed to lead the assassins and kill Canby himself, on the condition that the general would be given one more last chance to meet Modoc demands. On April 5th, of 1873, Jack once again met with Alfred Meacham and John Fairchild along with Judge A.M. Rossborough, who is now also part of the Peace Commission. This several-hour meeting took place in a tent outside of the stronghold, about a mile from Colonel Gillam's camp, and once again, no terms were agreed upon. Thinking that maybe there was room for improvement, Meacham sent word to Captain Jack through a Modoc lady named Toby Riddle that he'd like to speak again in another few days. Now, Toby Riddle's actual real name was Nanukua, or Strange Child, and she was Jack's cousin by blood and married to a Wairika local by the name of Frank Riddle. Originally from Kentucky, Riddle lit out for California when he was just 18 and staked a claim at the Wairika gold diggings. That's how he first met Toby, when her father brought her to town at just 12 years of age in order to sell her services to the white miners. Frank ended up buying Toby outright, and two years later, when she was just 14, the couple had a child named Jefferson Davis Riddle, but they wouldn't officially get married until 1869. Needless to say, by the time the Modoc war broke out, both Frank and his wife Toby were often employed by the military as interpreters, with Toby also working as an emissary delivering messages. Upon returning from the stronghold this last time, however, Miss Riddle had a dire warning for General Canby, claiming she had overheard the Modocs scheming to kill him and the other peace commissioners. The general listened to her respectively, but ultimately dismissed her concerns allegedly saying, quote, Toby, I thank you very much for your kind words, but where my duty calls me, I go as a soldier. You see, I have to go, end quote. As such, on Good Friday, April 11th, 1873, General Canby, along with Meacham, Toby and Frank Riddle, and the newer members of the commission, L.S. Dyer and the Reverend Elizar Thomas, all convened at the peace tent awaiting the Modoc. And sure enough, Captain Jack showed up. With him was Hooker Jim, Bogus Charlie, Boston Charlie, Scotchin and John, Ellen's man George, and another guy by the name of Black Jim. All armed, by the way. And once again, despite General Canby breaking out the Seagars, the two sides could not come to an agreement. Things grew more and more tense and heated, and suddenly, two Modoc, Slow Lux, and Bronco, emerged from their hiding spots, rifles in hand. Almost as if on cue, Captain Jack gave the order and pulled out his own revolver leveling it at an astonished General Canby and pulling the trigger. The pistol misfired, and Jack quickly thumbed back the hammer and squeezed the trigger again, this time sending a round straight into the General's head. This was followed by a second round and a knife to the throat just to make things certain. At the same time, Boston Charlie was busy dispatching the good Reverend Thomas, shooting him in both the chest and head as Sconch John pumped four rounds into Alfred Meacham. Dyer and Frank Riddle were able to escape on foot as Toby Riddle yelled out to the Modoc that the soldiers were coming. A little white lie that helped her husband and Dyer escape and caused the offending warriors to break camp and head back to the stronghold. She also saved the life of Alfred Meacham. He was badly wounded but still alive, and in the process of getting scalped when Toby yelled out her warning, causing the Modoc to make a hasty retreat and allowing Toby to tend to Meacham's wounds. Alfred Meacham would live, but the Modoc had just damned themselves their chance of ever receiving a reservation of their choosing, forever dashed with this act of treachery. With no incentive for peace, the military would now attack the stronghold again, this time with over twice as many soldiers as before. In just a little over a month, the entire war would be over, and in six months, Captain Jack would be dead. And unfortunately, you'll have to wait to hear how all this shakes out. I figured the death of General Canby would be a good stopping point today, so... Please join me in two weeks as we wrap up the MODOK War with a final episode. Really hoping you're enjoying these multi-part episodes. If I covered the entire MODOK War in just one episode, it would either be way too short or way too long. If it's too short, I'd have to leave out a lot of good information. If it's too long, it would take me forever and there's just no way I could pump out an episode every two weeks. Breaking this story up into three parts allows me to go into greater detail and not burn myself out in the process. And not every episode or topic going forward is going to be a multi-parter. I've got plenty of one-off episodes coming as well. Just certain topics like this one need a bit more attention. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more, I've been immensely enjoying a book titled The Modoc and Their War by Keith A. Murray. Also, there's the YouTube channel I referenced earlier, The Story Out West. I got no idea who the guy is that creates the content, but he's pretty damn good. And his series on the Modoc is absolutely worth checking out. I've also been reading a book titled Remembering the Modoc War by Boyd Cothran. I will warn you though, this one is not a casual read. And I only recommend it if you're already very well versed in the Modoc War and really want to take a deep dive. Okay, correction time. On a recent episode, Kit vs. Goliath, I was discussing the cost of supplies at the annual Trapper's Rendezvous. And I said that some items would be marked up as much as a thousand percent and compared this to a gallon of milk costing $4,000. Well, it turns out I'm a moron. Shocker, I know. $4 a gallon of milk marked up by 1,000% would only come out to about 44 bucks, not 4000 And here's how stupid I am. I don't even know if that's correct. Y'all, when I say I barely graduated high school, I'm not kidding. My math is beyond atrocious. I remember when I was a senior, I needed like the bare minimum of math credits. And I don't remember the name of the class that they stuck me in, but I was the only senior in a classroom full of freshmen. And let's just say Daddy ain't been taking tutorials in the years that followed. Another correction. I'm told I've been pronouncing Klamath wrong. It's not Klamath, but Klamath. Duly noted. If there's anything else you'd like to correct me on, please don't hesitate to email me at josh at wildwestextra.com. Or if you just want to say hi or tell me that you find my voice extremely sexy, whatever. josh at wildwestextra.com. Your emails and comments are not just welcome, they're needed. They let me know I'm not just yelling out into the void. And if you can't remember that email address, just head on over to my website, WildWestExtra.com, and gently massage that contact button. I'd like to extend a big thank you to all my supporters on Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee, and for the paying members on YouTube. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It really means a lot and really helps keep me motivated to churn out these episodes. If you would also like to contribute to the cause, links for Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee in the show notes. And if spending money ain't your thing, you'd be doing me a tremendous favor just by sharing this podcast with somebody. They say we're set to hit 8 billion people here on Earth pretty soon. 8 billion. I gotta figure there's at least a few thousand more people out of that 8 billion that might enjoy themselves some Wild West extravaganza. So please help spread the word. All right, that's all I got this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for your kind emails. Thanks for everything. Till next time, try not to vastly underestimate your opponent or violate the flag of truce. Adios. in one hand and a revolver in the other.